From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Biden's Deputy Defense Secretary nominee promises to make adjustments to improve oversight of the department's business operations if she's confirmed. Kathleen Hicks told the Senate Armed Services Committee at her confirmation hearing Tuesday, Congress should change incentives for spending money in the department to get better outcomes. FCW reports Hicks testified that so far, the department's plan to break up the chief management office and move its functions does, quote, appear reasonable. The Coast Guard has a new civilian leader. The Senate confirmed Alejandro Mayorkas to become the next Secretary of Homeland Security Tuesday. The final vote was 56-43. That's the closest of any of the Biden nominees so far. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency will use a broker to help it get commercial information at the best price. A new solicitation from NGA says the agency will use the geophysical data purchasing contract to buy data off the shelf to fill in gaps and find sources the agency didn't know about before. NextGov reports the solicitation says the NGA will start its buying through the contract with gravitational data. The Pentagon could cancel the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract after two years of bid protests. Defense Department officials say they might cancel it if a judge agrees to hear arguments from Amazon Web Services about political interference. Larry Korb is senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manpower, Reserve Affairs, Installations and Logistics. Larry, you have a historical scope on things like this that not many people in Washington have. Have you seen anything that compares to where JEDI has gone over the last two, three years? No, I've never seen anything like this. <clears throat> right before the contract was to be awarded, the president of the United States, then Donald Trump, <clears throat> came out and said, I hope you don't give it to Amazon. And then, of course, when they had the award and it didn't go to Amazon, which a lot of people thought it would. In fact, going in, everybody just assumed that Amazon would get this given their uh, leadership in this whole area of cloud computing. And so then they went to court. And the interesting thing is it wasn't Amazon that went to court the first time. It was Oracle, who was another one of the bidders. And then, of course, the Pentagon did it over and they came out and said, you know, uh, uh, you know that uh, Microsoft won again. And then we found out that during the process that one of the people involved used to work for Amazon. So, I mean, it really, really is very, very complicated and, and different than um, anything I've ever seen. You speak bureaucraties at the Defense Department far more fluently than I do, so please correct my translation. I read this in this info paper, which I've never seen anything uh, quite like before. The prospect of such a lengthy litigation process, if the court denies this motion to dismiss uh, count four of Amazon's claims regarding improper influence, uh, might bring the future of the Jedi cloud procurement into question. Under this scenario, DOD CIO would reassess the strategy moving forward. Is that a translation in your view for cancellation? No, I think what it is is either, you know, you people let us make the decision that we want or we're going to cancel it and nobody will win. And their concern is that if the court decides that they're going to have to redo the process again or have lengthy hearings, that our readiness will suffer. Because after all, this is very critical 
to the men and women who are defending this country both at home and and abroad and you know we're all two years uh, behind already and we do have some capabilities in the various departments and services that could go ahead but it will not be as good if they don't have the the one cloud computing uh, contract. That's where I wanted to go next, Larry. Dana Deasy said on a number of occasions that Jedi at any given time would only be about 10% of the total cloud capacity of the Department of Defense. What else could the department build or where else could they draw from without having to get this capability without having to build this whole different new thing? Well, what they'd have to do is the various agencies that are involved in this and the services are going to have to do it themselves but we find out that you know while we have separate services and agencies we really fight as one as one group and so you want to have something that integrates everything because you don't want things to fall through the cracks does starting this over again make sense from a defense procurement perspective in your experience larry or does modifying this somehow ultimately get a better outcome for the warfighter, which is the point of this in the first place? Well, starting over, again, it depends on how long you can go. I mean, you say we're going to start over and we're going to do it in three months and we're going to go ahead and look at the complaints that the uh, judges made. But it really depends upon what the decision of the court is and what things that they want, whether they're going to get involved again before this contract gets awarded. Help me understand this info paper and the significance of it. As I said, I'm certainly not the expert that you are, but I haven't seen a paper like this where the department basically says to Congress, if this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do this. Are these the, a, a normal way of communicating between the department and the Hill, or is this an unusual circumstance for an unusual case? Well, this is an unusual circumstance. I mean, usually when you're awarding a contract, say, to build a plane or a ship or, or something like that, you get it solved uh, pretty quickly. But what they're saying, you know, this could drag out in the courts for years. And if it does, this is what we're going to do, because our main job is, while this may not be perfect, you know, 90, we can get 90 percent of what we need to deal with uh, the, the, everything that the clouds uh, would give us. We have about uh, 30 seconds left, Larry. What will you watch moving forward? Well, what I would like is a secretary. We got a new secretary of defense and a new deputy uh, to come in and say, this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it. I think that the secretary of defense or the deputy secretary ought to hold a press conference and announce exactly what they're going to do going forward because this thing has just dragged on too long. Larry Korb, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to that info paper at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the climate change fight at DOD. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the national defense implications of that fight. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. One of President Biden's newest executive orders incorporates climate change into the mission of national security agencies. The order also calls for a climate risk analysis and a government-wide approach to the climate crisis. 
Sharon Burke is senior advisor at New America. She's former assistant secretary of defense for operational energy plans and programs. She's writing about the intersection between climate change and defense in Defense One. Sharon, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I told you before we went on the air, I love reading your work because you make me think differently about things. You write this, in March 2019, a bomb hit off at Air Force Base, destroying a half mile of runway and 60 buildings and inflicting more than $600 million in damage. That wasn't a kinetic bomb, though. What's the bomb you're referring to? That was a bomb cyclone, which is a weather phenomenon where basically it's a perfect storm, right? It's ice and water and melting snow and a cyclonic storm all coming over together and forming what is called a bomb cyclone. So it has a big impact where it hits. The, you write about two main reasons that climate change is important to consideration in the national security community. The first, you write, scores of military installations around the world are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change from droughts to floods to fires. How has that changed over the past, say, decade? And what do we know or what do we anticipate about how it would change in, say, the coming decade? Well, all of those impacts are getting worse. And everybody in this country has seen that, that storms that you didn't see very often, now you're seeing every couple of years. So that affects bases, military bases, just like it does everyone else. A lot of these bases are littoral, they're on the coastline, so they're vulnerable to storm surge, to coastal storms, and to those kinds of floods. That's a particular problem. Um, and, and then there are bases in a lot of arid areas where droughts and sudden flash floods are a huge problem as well. All of those events are increasing and they will continue to increase. The volatility of weather patterns is rising. I want to talk about one of those areas in particular in a moment, but the second um, item that you write about is climate change is increasingly shaping the Defense Department's role in protecting the nation's security in direct and indirect uh, ways. You didn't use the word already there in reference to President Biden's uh, climate change executive order, but I heard it when I read it. Am I hearing you right? I'm sorry. Can you clarify what your question is? This is a challenge that the nation's been dealing with for a period of time, and President Biden's climate change EOs, as I read your piece, are addressing the issue that we're already dealing with rather than previewing something that we can expect to see in the future. Is that fair to say? It's both, actually. So we are already seeing the effects of climate change. And when I said direct and indirect, you know, so direct is that effect on the bases. And, you know, bases are certainly where uh, American forces live and where they work, where they train, where they have to get ready. Um, but it's also increasingly where we're directly conducting military operations from, whether that's unmanned systems or other kinds of information warfare. These are very important places for us around the country, you know, in every state in the union and also overseas. So the fact that they are already experiencing an increase in volatile weather impacts is a problem. It's going to get worse. And it's going to get worse no matter what happens with cutting greenhouse gas emissions, because a certain amount of this change is already locked in. So these things are already happening and they're going to get worse if we don't succeed in limiting our greenhouse gas emissions, they will get much worse over time. So it's both. It's, it's both 
what's already happened and a preview of what's to come. I want to come back to the greenhouse gas uh, concept in a moment because you wrap your piece with that. But the theater of operations I was referring to a moment ago is the Arctic. And we've seen uh, tremendous difficulty with the Coast Guard in having presence in the Arctic. At the same time, Russia and China both are ramping up operations in, in that part of the world. Um, how should issues like the ice melt in the Arctic and the other climate issues that you've discussed influence the way that we think about the shape of the military, the shape of the national security apparatus, the inventory of equipment, all of that in the coming years, Sharon? So that was that's on the mission side of the impacts. There's two different kinds of impacts there. One is there are missions like, you know, the the U.S. Armed Forces are very active in humanitarian and disaster relief, whether it's at home, where they're supporting civil authorities or around the world, where we're helping partners or allies or, you know, any time the State Department says we need to help, our forces go. That kind of mission is increasing. So that's a direct, you know, correlation for the Department of Defense, and they need to incorporate that into their planning for the future. But it's the indirect impact that's potentially really huge, because as you said, you know, with the Arctic and around the world, Climate change is having a dramatic effect. It's melting glaciers, it's changing water supplies, it's, it's you know, inflicting droughts all over the world, whether that's the Himalayas, where, you know, a billion people live in the shadow of the Himalayas, China, India, you know, strategic partners, competitors, it affects all of them. How that's going to affect the balance, the stability of nations is really important, and it really comes to a head in the Arctic. The Arctic has been, you know, locked in with ice for most of human history, but climate change is melting that ice. And for the first time, we're going to have a navigable ocean up there in the Arctic Ocean. And, you know, Russia has a very long Arctic coastline and a lot of valuable real estate up there. The United States has a long Arctic coastline. And then we have four NATO allies that are on the littoral. So China is building, has, is building its third heavy icebreaker and has a very keen interest in, in that polar route. It cuts two weeks off of the time between Asia and Europe. That is a very valuable change for them. And then it also opens up a lot of natural resources that were just simply not accessible before because that is one harsh environment up there. But it's melting and it's changing the game. And it's bringing all the nations together in that place. And, you know, of course, that's ironic because it also means that these changes are hard upon us. And this is, you know, this is a fact. This is something you can see with satellites, with sonar buoys. This is not this is not an opinion or a mathematical model. This is an observation that the Arctic is melting and it is changing the geopolitics of that region for sure. Sharon Burke, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Great to be here as always. You can find a link to Sharon's piece in Defense One at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, mission near impossible for the new defense secretary. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the three-item list Lloyd Austin needs to succeed. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Barriers in strategy, budget, and culture are the three biggest obstacles Lloyd Austin has to overcome as defense secretary, according to my next guest. Austin needs three things to overcome them and succeed as SecDef. 
Harlan Ullman is chair at the Killowin Group. His most recent book is Anatomy of Failure. He's writing about the new defense secretary in the Hill. Harlan, welcome. It's great to see you as always. You write in this piece, the department is wedded to the 2018 national defense strategy. What latitude does the new administration have in constructing the next NDS, do you think? The issue isn't latitude, it's time. Uh, as you know, uh, Francis, I believe that the current great power competition is fundamentally flawed for several reasons. The intent is to compete, deter, and defeat uh, China or Russia if war comes. But nowhere has that been specifically defined as what competition means. It's more than just having freedom of navigation uh, operations. As far as deterring, what are we trying to deter? We're not deterring the Chinese with the Uyghurs. We're not deterring the Russians with active measures, with solar winds, or with imprisoning Alexander Navalny and defeat. Uh, as Secretary of Defense Bob Gates once said, any secretary who becomes engaged in a land war in Asia needs his or her head examined. And so, unfortunately, uh, Secretary Austin has to deal with the old strategy while a new one is being constructed. The old strategy, in my judgment, is not affordable or executable. Uh, regarding the budget, the budget's not going to grow. Uh, as a former chief of, as former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Joe Dunford said at least three to five percent annual real growth is needed just to sustain the current force. The Defense Business Board believes is actually five to seven percent. So even at fixed budgets, uh, we're still going to be losing an awful lot of uh, military capability. And finally, in terms of culture, uh, civilian control of the military is a huge issue. Over the past 11 years, we've had 11 different secretaries, seven uh, secretaries and four acting secretaries. And so the military has taken, understandably, a larger role simply because of the absence of leadership. And so re-exerting civilian control, as well as dealing with sexual harassment, indeed, if you listen to the Austin hearings or the hearings on for Kathleen Hicks yesterday, one of the major issues was sexual harassment. We're dealing with right-wing white supremacy. And on top of that, the department has been directed by the president, I think rightly, to make dealing with COVID-19 a number one priority. So these are huge obstacles for this new secretary to deal with. We've got to put in place a strategy. How long will that take? The budget is going to cause real cuts. And not only do we have to reimpose civilian control of the military, namely on the service secretary side, but we also have to deal with sexual harassment and white supremacism as well as with COVID-19. These are huge obstacles, and it'd be hard-pressed to think of a former secretary, probably not since George Marshall, who took over in the middle of the Korean War, who was facing this, this extent of challenge. You suggest three things for Secretary Austin to succeed. Ruthlessly challenging, as you put it, the national defense strategy, and you've outlined briefly why you think that's important. Ensuring that nominees for service secretaries, you write, not only understand the need for civilian control, but each must have the capacity to fill that need. And third, complete congressional support. I want to start with the second one in the time that we have remaining, because I think the most, uh, the word I want your comment on the most is that word capacity. What capacity should the service secretaries have? Have, uh, in order to be successful so that Secretary Austin is successful, Harlan? Uh, they've got to be extremely competent. They've got to be extremely tough. And they've got to realize that under Title 10 of the law, it is the service secretary who's responsible for organizing training and equipping, not the military. This is not a partnership. We've got to work very closely with the military, but the service secretary has to be in charge. And if I could name one who really filled that bill uh, 40 years ago, it was John Lehman. We need a series of John Laymans, in my judgment, for Navy, Air Force, and Army. Are they out there, Harlan? They are. The question is, who wants to work for the government? 
not only is the pay bad, but the, uh, the whole process of confirmation is very difficult. And given today's uh, social media, everybody's going to be subjected to all sorts of attack, especially when you're trying to make cuts and making tough decisions. So getting people to serve is a very, very difficult deal. But yes, they are out there. Uh, the, the third item that you mentioned that you list in this piece, complete congressional support. What does that look like and how far away have previous administrations been from having it? They've been hugely uh, far away. I mean, the Department of Defense, certainly over the last decade, and certainly under Donald Trump, has been very remote. Uh, Secretary Austin should be having some meal, lunch or dinner, or breakfast with um, the chairman of the Armed Services Committees of, of both houses. Uh, that's essential. They've got to be wedded. Now, they're going to have disagreements, but the more openness and transparency between the Armed Services Committee and the Secretary of Defense, the more important that will be. Uh, finally, that's going to be a tough issue because White Houses want to exert control and they don't want to have a Secretary of Defense too much on his own. So joining those meetings could be the National Security Advisor or somebody from the House, but we from the White House. But we need to have far closer integration between the Hill because budgets are not going to support the current strategy. I don't know that they're going to support the future strategy. This is really essential. We have about 30 seconds left. Um, when Richard Spencer was on this program a number of years back, he talked about breakfasts among him, Secretary Wilson, and Secretary Esper when he was still Army Secretary. Yeah. Are those breakfasts a good idea, Harlan? Absolutely. The services have got to work together. We cannot have the stovepiping. What's happened over the last four or five years is services in many ways have become collusive. As long as you support my program, I'll support yours. We don't have the budget to go around. They're going to be tough cuts. If we're going to grow the Navy, it means we're going to have to shrink the Air Force or the Army or vice versa. And so collaboration, more than collaboration, there's got to be complete integration between and among the services, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Harlan Allman, great insight as always. Thank you very much. Quite welcome, Francis. You can find a link to Harlan's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.